So let's pray, and then we'll get started. So, Father, again, it is always good to meet with others who love you and to come into your presence and to receive from you as we give you what you so richly deserve, praise, honor, a declaration of our allegiance to you, because ultimately you're the only one worthy of our allegiance. Now, Lord, as I try to share from your scriptures what I think you want me to say today, I just pray that uh, you will work in my words and through my words, that uh, what I have to share won't just be a bunch of heady stuff, but it will actually communicate to our hearts and show us how to love and bless the people in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last year, a prominent and highly respected vineyard pastor published a book. It was in the first half of 2014, so it was a year to a year and a half ago. And in the book, he said and he described how his personal views on same-sex relationships had changed. He said that he came to believe that uh, he could and that he would uh, perform the wedding ceremonies for uh, same-sex couples who were interested in a long-term committed relationship. He also said that uh, as a pastor, he would uh, license and ordain and bring onto pastoral staff uh, persons in the LGBT community who are in committed relationships and members of his church. Now, as you might imagine, that uh, sent shockwaves through the vineyard uh, movement here in the United States. As a church, we're a part of a movement of churches, 1,700 or something like that worldwide, uh, or actually I think about 2,500 worldwide and something, I can't remember how many are in the United States, something like 1,700 I think in the United States uh, right now. Those numbers are off the top of my head, so don't hold me uh, to them. But anyway, so a lot of churches and uh, there were calls from other leaders in the vineyard for the national leadership of the vineyard to clarify the vineyard here in the United States position on same-sex marriage on, and on many of the issues that are involved in that. It was really less of a call and more of a demand. And so the national leadership of the vineyard drew from other leaders around the country and really around the world within the vineyard to come together to confer. And then later in 2014, they released a statement about the vineyard's position on these the issues relevant to same-sex marriage and, and what have you. So the conclusion was that as vineyard churches, we want to be welcoming to everyone because we want everyone to have the opportunity to encounter Jesus to experience his love, to experience the, the hope that is found in him, the life transformation that can be found in him. At the same time, there are a couple of boundaries. As the Vineyard Movement, uh, they said that we will not uh, ordain uh, or license uh, pastors in uh, LGBT uh, relationships, uh, they also uh, said that uh, vineyard pastors are not to uh, perform ceremonies for same-sex marriages. Then, nine days ago, the United States Supreme Court released a decision that effectively legalized gay marriage here in all 50 states. It was, al it already, it was already legalized in 37 of the 50 states, but this basically legalized it in all 50 states. The reaction, as you're aware, was immediate. 
supporters of gay marriage celebrated outside of the court uh, you know, at, the, at the release of the, the, the ruling. Uh, rallies were held all over America that evening. Others were horrified. There, were, there was lamenting, a kind of mourning that took place in many conservative Christian circles. There was fear that was articulated about God's judgment on America. One very popular, very, very well-known Christian leader wrote this. I pray God will spare America from his judgment, though by our actions as a nation we give him less and less reason to do so. And then even among Christians, the loudest voices seem to be either those fearing God's judgment on our country or those who have come to believe that the Bible does not speak against long-term, committed, same-sex relationships. And largely lost in the noise are the voices of, of those in what I would call the silent middle. For me, though, the Supreme Court decision raises a bigger question. And although I will have a little bit more to say about the Supreme Court's verdict, that bigger question is what I really want to spend most of my time talking about uh, today. And that question is this. What does it mean to be Christian in America? What does it mean to be Christian in America? Or put differently, how are we to live as followers of Jesus in an America that is now post-Christian? And so to respond to that question, I'd like us to make our way through a few passages of Scripture at the end of the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is written as a letter, but the tone and the flow of this letter is really more like a sermon. And in this sermon that takes the form of a letter, the author to the Hebrews really has one point. It is consistent from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 13. And his one point is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is better than anything or anyone that has ever been encountered by anyone anywhere and at any place and at any time in all of history. Jesus is better. And so the author argues that the Jewish Christians to whom he writes would be foolish to turn away from Jesus. Even though they are going through difficult times, they need to persevere. They won't regret it because nothing and no one trumps Jesus. He is worth whatever they have to go through. He is worth whatever they have to go through. So where we are picking things up here in Hebrews, the author is about to list a bunch of examples that they can follow in order to persevere during difficult times. He's going to list a bunch of people whose examples they can follow. But first, he reminds them of how they responded to past times of suffering, past times of difficulty. So we're going to start in chapter 10 and beginning in verse 32. So we're starting in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 32. The author writes, and by the way, I keep saying the author because we don't know who the author is. So I'm pretty sure he was a guy. That's why I'm using he. But you could argue, I guess, even, even with that. So anyway, verse 32 of Hebrews 10. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Now, let me pause to say, just for a moment, it is not my intention to even really suggest that the kind of, that, that anything that we might experience as followers of Jesus in America today is the equivalent of what these early Christians experienced in the Roman Empire, or that it is in any way equivalent to the suffering that many Christians experience around the world today. In fact, I don't see that kind of suffering happening in my lifetime, or maybe even in my son's lifetime. Now, that being said, I am not a prophet. I make no claims to be able to see into the future but I just don't see us facing things like these 
early Christians were facing or that many around the world have uh, continued to face. That being said, I think it would be foolish to assume that there will be no fallout for Christian organizations because of the Supreme Court's ruling uh, two Fridays ago. I think it is less likely to affect churches directly, but I think it will eventually probably have some ramifications for Christian colleges and charities uh, that they very well could be impacted. Uh, One of my friends is a sociologist and a professor who focuses on religion in America. He is in support of the Supreme Court's decision to legalize gay marriage. But even with that, he says that it is likely that Christian organizations, again, especially colleges, charities, will experience some fallout because of this verdict. So I think we do need to understand that and to some extent expect that. So with that, let's continue. The author of Hebrews goes on in verse 34. Look what he says. He says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And here we have the most astounding statement in these verses that we're looking at in Hebrews 10. During prior persecution, these Jewish believers joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Other translations say the seizure of their property or the plundering of their goods. They accepted it joyfully. Now, I have to say, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus here in the United States, I don't see this attitude a lot here in America. I see a lot of Christians crying foul when they feel like their rights have somehow been violated or they feel personally injured, but I don't see joy. And I understand that we live in a democracy, and I'm not against people standing up for their rights, but biblically, there isn't much really to go on there, especially for those who tend to scream the loudest and become aggressive in their claims. Joyful acceptance, though, there's a lot of biblical support for that. And I think it's more than simply living in a democracy that causes us to recoil at the thought of joyfully accepting being wronged. It is evidence that we haven't really let the gospel challenge our identity as Americans. And we need to ask ourselves, which are we first? Are we Americans or are we followers of Jesus first? But let's not move past this astounding statement too quickly. It was astounding then. It would be even more astounding if we actually saw it happening today. What is it that these Jewish believers, what is it that led these Jewish believers to joyfully accept the confiscation of their property? And the author tells us in this verse, they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. They possessed what could never be taken away. They possessed what, what they had possessions that were completely secure, eternally Secure, And then coming 10 chapters into this letter, the, the original readers would have understand what the author was getting at. That Jesus himself is what they had. He is, if you will, the possession that is eternal, that is completely secure for them. He is the one who is always better. He is the one who is always lasting. And he is the and so he, and he is so... Great. He is so beautiful. He is so all consuming. He was all of that for them. He was so great. He was so beautiful. He was so all consuming for these original Hebrew readers that they could joyfully accept wrongs done to them because they had Him, because they had a possession that would never, they could never, ever lose. And again, I think we need to step back for a moment and ask ourselves. Do we have that? Do the leaders that are often taken to represent conservative Christians or evangelical Christians in America exhibit that? This kind of joyful acceptance, no matter what happens to us, because Jesus is ultimate to us. Is Jesus so great 
so beautiful, so all-consuming for you that you could joyfully accept wrongs done to you because you know you have him. Because you know you have him. This is a question I have been asking myself again for the last week and a half or more. Is Jesus that great, that beautiful, that all-consuming for me? Is he that for me? I want him to be. So after reminding them of their past experience and faithfulness, the author urges them. Look at verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. They needed to hear that. They needed to hear that their confidence in Jesus would be richly rewarded because there was no obvious reward coming to them. They needed to be reminded that there was something beyond material possessions. There was something beyond public popularity that they could hold on to. They could hold on to Jesus himself. And because of that, they could have the courage to to persevere through what the author earlier calls this fiery ordeal that they currently find themselves in. And in the next few few verses, the author further urges them to persevere and hold on to their faith. It is with that word faith that he transitions into chapter 11. And he goes through this list of people that have been referred to as the heroes of the faith. We're not going to read all of chapter 11, although I encourage you to do so. I want us just to look at one of the examples that the author gives them, and that is Abraham. So look at what the author says in chapter 11 in verse 8. Chapter 11 and verse 8. He says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham lived as a, as a stranger in a foreign country while he was in the promised land, while he was in the land that was promised to him and his descendants. How could that be? It's because even in the promised land, he knows there's something better. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In Jewish thought, at this time, there were some who believed that the heavenly Jerusalem was the only true city, the only unshakable city, the only completely fortified, safe city because its architect, its builder was God. And so they looked for, they longed for a time when the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem would so intermingle that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two. Or to put it in a language that Jesus used, where God would reign, his kingdom would come, and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what the author here in Hebrews tells us is that Abraham was looking for that as well. He also longed for that day. He wasn't at home, even in the promised land, because he longed for his true home. He longed for his true country. So the author continues in verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Though Abraham and, through Abraham and Sarah, God would form a people through whom every nation on earth would be blessed. But even with that promise, Abraham and Sarah didn't see everything they wanted to see. They didn't see the fulfillment of that promise. They were still longing for the day when that would come true. So verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, all these people in verse 13 refers to Abraham, Sarah, and the others the author has mentioned up to this point in chapter 11. They believed in what they hadn't yet received. And even at their death, they still hadn't received it. Instead, they lived as foreigners and strangers on earth. They were more like immigrants than citizens. And I think that is the point that the author is trying to make here in this paragraph, that following Jesus, faith in Jesus makes us more like immigrants than citizens in this world. We have a higher allegiance than that to our present country. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and that means our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, the king. Our ultimate allegiance is to him. His is a better government, a better country. And we see this in other parts of the New Testament. We see this, for instance, in 1 Peter, when he also states this call to see ourselves as sojourners, as those never quite at home in this present place, never quite at home in our present country. So on this 4th of July weekend, I think it's good that we thank God for this nation. I think it's good that we celebrate the freedoms that we experience as citizens of this country. It's good for us to love the country that we live in. It's good for us to love our fellow citizens. But I think we do that best when we remember that we are ultimately citizens of a better country. We are never quite at home here. And we, we are best as citizens of the United States when we, when we live as people looking for our true home. When we look at, live as people longing for our true home. When we remember that there is a better country and there is a better leader, Jesus the King, and our ultimate allegiance is to him. Our ultimate allegiance is to him. And things get confusing pretty quickly when we lose sight of this better country. And I think it's fairly common for followers of Jesus in the United States to lose sight of it. We've gotten so used to Christianity being a powerful, influential force in America that we don't know how to act when we come face to face with the harsh reality that the days of Christian cultural influence, at least when using the methods of evangelicals for the last 35 or 40 years, has lar- are largely behind us. The days of Christian cultural influence in the United States, the way we are used to that being exercised, those days, I think, are largely behind us. So we feel like the sky is falling when we come face to face with that reality. We feel like our country is being taken away from us, and that exposes our hearts. We have become quite at home here in America. Followers of Jesus have become quite at home here in America. We have generally experienced such phenomenal prosperity and become so used to convenience that we have lost sight of the better country, so much so that we expect people who aren't followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus. We expect people with no religious affiliation to yield to laws based on religious conscience. And when they don't, when things don't go our way, we warn of God's judgment, we insult those who disagree with us, and we further alienate people Jesus loves. We have indeed become quite at home in America. The way evangelical Christians have chosen to engage controversial issues has largely been called the culture wars, and the attitude of many Christian leaders have seemed to be that of warfare that of doing battle against those that don't agree with them, forcefully combating those positions with which they disagree, and claiming that the United States began as a Christian nation, or at least one founded in Christian principles, the assumption has been that government should pass and enforce laws based on Christian morals. And surely, I mean, surely we can see why American citizens affiliated with a different religion or that have no religious affiliation would reject that approach, especially in areas like gay marriage, where the culture no longer sees homosexual relations as immoral, 
in doing so, are they really rejecting God? As is often the claim that's made, are they rejecting a certain approach that Christians have taken in our cultural engagement in this nation? I think we make a mistake when we assume they're rejecting God rather than the evangelical approach. The point I really want to make is this. The culture war approach no longer works and will not work in a post-Christian nation. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir talking in this church, but, but, I, just want to, but I think we need, to, we need to understand that the culture war approach will, will no longer work in a post-Christian nation. We need to think differently when it comes to the overarching question, what does it mean to be a Christian in America? And historically, Christians holding to a traditional interpretation of scripture have come to different positions on issues like gay marriage. So I was going to go through like five or six of those historical positions, and then I thought better of that. You should probably be thankful about that. But I still couldn't resist, and I'd written it out. So what I did was on the resource table in the lobby, I actually, it's just a front and back page, but I actually print out this page that has the stuff I really, really do want you to know about. But I'm not under any illusions that all of you are going to take this, so I actually only printed out 10 of them. But anyway, I can do more if, you, if more people want them. But you can see what the different approaches have uh, been. <clears throat> My point, though, in even describing the, the, the different approaches is, is not to argue for any one of them, although I do kind of include my, what I see as the shortcomings of each of them. My point is not to say you should accept one of these historical approaches. My point is to, is to point out that Christians, committed, sincere followers of Jesus, who tend to adhere to a traditional interpretation of the scriptures, have come to different positions when it comes to issues like gay marriage. They, we have historically disagreed. And so where you fall in this position is not in my mind a test of any kind for your sincerity as a follower of Jesus. Just so you know where I tend to fall, personally, I agree with theologian Ron Sider. In his book, Just Faith, he points out that historically there have been some sins, such as, say, murder, or stealing theft, what the Bible calls the sins, that Christians have argued there should be laws against. And then there have been other sins, like lying, envy, gluttony, thankfully, that Christians have tended not to argue that there should be laws against. So Cider urges Christians to take the issues of our day on a case-by-case basis and prayerfully consider how we should approach them. I think that is a generally good approach. But that takes time. It takes time to do that. So how do we respond to these changing times that we find ourselves in right now, when things seem so unsettled? Another vineyard pastor, Rich Nathan, describes the the shift and how many followers of Jesus in the United States feel about this shift that has taken place regarding gay marriage. He describes it as like changing street signs. Imagine that you woke up one morning and you found that Chestnut Expressway was now Glenstone Avenue. And Glenstone Avenue was now Sunshine Street. And Sunshine Street was now Campbell Avenue, and so on and so on. How would you feel? It would, you would be confused. You would feel unsettled. Now imagine... That happened after living in Springfield 40, 50, 60 years. You would feel like your city was in some ways being taken away from you, being stolen from you. And that's some of the emotions that followers of Jesus are experiencing and and experiencing in response even to this Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. The author of Hebrews is writing to members of a global church that was just beginning. They had no cultural influence. Followers of Jesus in the United States today are members of a global church that has existed for 2,000 years and for at least hundreds of years has wielded considerable, in some cases, dominant cultural influence in our world. What the first, what the, what the readers, the original readers of Hebrews were feeling, they were feeling lack. 
They had no cultural power. They never had it. What we feel, what many of us feel in the United States today is we feel loss. We feel loss because cultural power we have gotten used to is something that we no longer are able to wield. But still, I think, with even those differences, Hebrews points the way forward for us. So with that, look at chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the, the list of heroes, right? The list of people in chapter 11. That's what he's referring to. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So based here on Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, I think there are two immediate steps that we can take, and then I want to add one other, not so much based on this passage, but I want to add one other immediate step that we can take. So first, first immediate step, Give up the culture war in your heart, if there is one, and whichever side you tend to find yourself on. Give up the culture war in your heart, if there is one, and on whichever side you tend to find yourself on. The author tells us to throw off everything that hinders, everything that would weigh us down in running the race set before us. I would like to suggest that the culture wars, or at least a culture war mentality, has largely been a hindrance. And it's one we need to throw off. It's one we need to throw off. The author also tells us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And this fits with his repeated call throughout this letter to what we might call personal holiness. Living fully devoted lives to Jesus. Or lives fully devoted to Jesus. Here in Hebrews and frequently in the New Testament, judgment is referred to as something that's delayed. It's something that will happen when Jesus returns. But there is a kind of judgment that followers of Jesus can experience now. And that judgment is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where he reveals our sins from us so that we can turn from our sins. Personally, I don't think warnings of God's judgment are all that helpful in a society that is becoming increasingly secular. But asking God to reveal our own sin to lead us in turning from it and to empower us to live truly and faithfully in the way of Jesus can cause the church in America to shine like stars in the universe, to use Paul's term in Philippians, to provide an effective witness to those who have not yet encountered Jesus. So how do you know if there's a culture war in your heart? That's kind of weird language. So how do you know that? How do you know if there's a culture war in your heart? Ask yourself this. Do you think in battle terms? Do you have a strong desire to out-argue those who disagree with you? Do you find yourself wanting, wanting to defeat their point of view? And so, you, if so, you may have bought into a culture war mentality. Again, no matter which side you tend to be agreeing with. Instead, try this. Listen to those who disagree with you. Really listen to them. Give them feedback. Take time to describe what you think you're saying. Engage in the hard work of listening until they tell you, yes, that is what I mean. Yes, you've gotten it. I couldn't have said that better myself. If when you get to that point, then you've really heard. And when you get to that point, what you will find, I think, is that you have connected heart to heart with another person. And in doing that, you will have shown them, at least given them a glimpse of the love that Jesus has for them. You will have been a witness for him. So instead of accusations, instead of taking up our cry for holiness for those who don't even care about holiness, let's take a posture of listening, of really listening to others until they say, I feel heard by you. 
So instead, try listening. And then maybe try this. If you find yourself wanting to stand up for religious liberty, if you just feel that strongly, you want to be one of those who stands up for religious liberty of the United States. Stand up for all religious liberty. Stand up for the liberty of all religions. Even those you might really, really disagree with. I know people who are scared that Sharia law will be instituted here in the United States. They really believe that. They feel it strongly. And many of those same people argue that our laws should be based on the Bible, on, what Christ, on, on Christian, traditional Christian morality. Now, I understand their reasoning. I understand how they get there. I know some of these people very, very, very well. I've walked this with them. But I think we have to understand how that seems like hypocrisy to others in our country. It comes across as a kind of hypocrisy. But when we stand up for, for the freedom to exercise any faith, all faiths, even those with which we strongly disagree, when we do that, I think, again, we offer a kind of witness to others. I'm just going to talk over that, if you're okay. Um, we have people who their only source of water is our faucet behind the church building, and we can afford uh, a little bit higher water bill for them to have water. And so when you hear that, you'll probably hear it again. That's what you're hearing. So if you can listen through it, I will try to talk uh, over it if it happens uh, again. So... Try standing up for all uh, religions, not just Christianity. So give up the culture war in your heart. I think that's an immediate step that we can take. Second, a second step is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Verse 2 again. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. Does that sound familiar? In Hebrews 10, we're told that these followers of Jesus had joyfully accepted the, the confiscation of their property, the plundering of their goods. How could they do that? Because they had their eyes on a future reward. They had their eyes on an eternal reward. They had their eyes on... Jesus. That's how that was possible for them to joyfully accept the confiscation of what they may have held dear because they had their eyes on him. And that's the way forward for us as well, to fix our eyes on him who suffered because of the joy set before him. I remember, actually, it's the first thing I ever heard from a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. Uh, he was talking about this passage of Hebrews. And he asked the question, what was the joy set before Jesus? King of kings, Lord of lords, going to his father. What possible joy could have been set before him? And I love Tim Keller's answer. I don't know if he was right, but it's, it's, it's nice. It's good. His answer was, you and, you and I. You and I were the joy set before him. What didn't he have that he so desperately wanted? He wanted us. He wanted to love us. He wanted to show us a way forward through all of the confusing times and experiences that we have. And we can make our way forward by looking to him. We can even experience joy in the midst of unsettled times as we look to him. In verse 3, the author says, To consider Jesus, who endured suffering from sinners. To consider him so that we will not lose heart to consider him so that we too can joyfully accept whatever comes our way. Winning a culture war won't bring that joy. The United States Supreme Court, had they not legalized gay marriage in the United States, that, would not, that decision would not have brought this kind of joy. The only one who brings this kind of joy is Jesus himself. Only he can bring joy 
like that. What does it mean to live as Christians in America? It means we keep our eyes on Jesus no matter what else is happening. Instead of looking to the ways our nation may or may not be moving away from Christian morals, let's fix our eyes on him. Let's look for the ways that he is at work in the lives of people who disagree with us, in the lives of people who don't even believe in him, in the lives of our gay and and lesbian friends, if we have them, if we have gay and lesbian friends. And I hope you do, by the way. Can I just say that? I hope you do. I hope you have a lot of people in your life that, that have different thoughts about morals, that, 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 have, that have lifestyles that, that maybe make you uncomfortable. But I hope you have a lot of people in your life like that so you can love this. You can learn to love them. You can learn to care for them. You can learn to be, with, to, to, to be there with them and for them to whatever they might be going through. That is what we see from Jesus, right? He scandalized the religious people of his day because he spent time with the people they didn't think anybody should spend time with. I hope we're doing some of that as well. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look for the ways that he is at work in others because Jesus is at work in their lives. He is. One of the greatest ways that we can be a blessing to the people around us and even to our country is to help them see how Jesus loves them, how he is closer to them than they can imagine, how he is right now working on their behalf. He is for them. And I think part of this is we have to decide what we believe about how people change. Do we believe the culture wars will bring deep, heartfelt change? Nothing in the last 40 years bears that out. Nothing. Rather than America as a nation moving culturally more toward Christianity, it has moved further away. Nothing bears that out in my mind anyway. This change more often come then through this change more often come through logical arguments or through personal experience. I don't think the kind of paradigm change that we are hoping for in our friends and family who do not yet follow Jesus comes through argumentation. I think it comes through an experience of Jesus. It comes through experiencing him. Our desire to prove we're right can often get in the way of people actually encountering Jesus. And that's why I think listening is such a good strategy because doing so, in doing so, we show that we care. And that provides relational legitimacy when we tell them that Jesus cares, that he really does care for them. When we point them to the ways in which he accepts and loves them. One Christian blogger, he's actually an editor for the evangelical section of a massive blog site called Pathios. His name is Tim Dalrymple. I think that's the way you pronounce his last name. Uh, he uh, wrote a couple of years ago about two conversations that he had. One was uh, with a guy who, who was describing his experience in a church. And he said that he never would have found Jesus. And he never would. He was an alcoholic. And he never would have found sobriety if the church had not accepted him as he was. If the church expected him to change before he could be a part of the church, he doubted that he would ever have found Christ or the sobriety that he longed for. Shortly after that, Tim Dalrymple says that he had another conversation with a friend of his that he had, I guess, somewhat lost touch with. And so they got together, and she told him about how she had come out as a lesbian. And she was immediately dismissed from her church And she was told, and he put this in quotation marks, so I assume this was a direct quote, that she was told that until she converted from lesbianism and converted back to Jesus, she could no longer be a part of the church. Tim Dalrymple said that as he was talking to her, their conversation just continued in more of a friendly vein. And at some point in the conversation, he asked her, well, how are you doing spiritually? And as soon as he asked her that question, he said she began to cry. She began to cry, and then she said, you're the first of my friends that has believed I could still be interested in spirituality as a lesbian. And then Tim Dalrymple wrote this. It reminded me of the recovering alcoholic, the first conversation. In that case, the church confessed the gospel the spirit convicted of sin, 
and the redemption of Christ transformed him. Yet in this case, the church was cutting a young woman off from engaging with God precisely when she needed to engage with him the most. Precisely when she needed to engage with him the most. We need to ask ourselves, what do we believe leads to true change? If it's an encounter with Jesus, then we need to make room for people to encounter Jesus. I remember years ago, I was at a conference. It was 2004. It's a long time ago now. And the speaker was Dave Schmelzer. At the time, he was the pastor of the a vineyard in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And he talked about another vineyard pastor named Steve, who I don't know. But he talked about another vineyard pastor who took an approach that was a bit surprising but incredibly rewarding. Surprising to Dave Schmelzer, but incredibly rewarding. This pastor, Steve, he had a, a guy, a younger guy, who had just become a follower of Jesus, was coming out of a lifestyle that was rough, hard. But he was eager. He wanted to know more. He wanted to connect with Jesus. And so they were meeting. They were reading through the Bible. They were talking about life and life in God and what that looks like and, and what have you. And after they've been meeting for a while, this guy asks Steve, he says, well, do you think I should stop smoking? And Steve said, well, what do you think God thinks about that? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to show you what he thinks about that? By the way, I don't think smoking is a sin issue. I think smoking is a health issue. Uh, we could argue about that. But anyway, so, but that was the question the guy asked. So Steve said, why don't you pray and see what the Holy Spirit tells you about that? So the guy did. He went away and he prayed. The next time they got together... He said, I think the Holy Spirit told me that I should stop smoking. And so they prayed that he would have the strength to do that. And over time, he did. He stopped smoking. Later, as they were meeting together, the guy brought up this, the relationship he had with his girlfriend. He said, do you think God wants me to stop living with my girlfriend? And Steve asked him, well, what do you think? He said, well, man, it'd be hard. You know, we're financially kind of dependent upon this and finding a place by ourselves. He said, well, yeah, but what do you think? God thinks, why don't you pray and ask the Holy Spirit what he thinks? And so the guy agreed to do that. And so over time, he prayed. And then another time when they were talking, the guy brings it up again. He says, you know, I was praying, and I believe the Holy Spirit told me that I should stop living with my girlfriend. And so we've each found different places, and we stopped doing that. What do we think brings change in people? Is it our persuasive arguments? Is it our biblical exegesis? Is it our wonderful interpretation of scripture? Is it screaming louder than the rest of the voices that want to scream into our culture and society? Or is it an actual encounter with Jesus? If it's an actual encounter with Jesus, then I think fixing our eyes on him and helping others see him for who he is is, the, is, the, is it should be our goal. It's the strategy that we should take on. If we believe deep heart change comes from encountering Jesus, then we need to help people connect with him. And often that means we suspend judgment and resist telling people what we think they ought to do and help them connect with Jesus so they can hear from him what his will is for their lives. So give up the culture war in your heart, if there is one. Fix your eyes on Jesus and help others see how he is working in their lives. And then the next immediate step I would suggest today, I am suggesting today, is love and do good for those within your circle of influence and ask God to expand your circle of influence. Love and do good for those within your circle of influence and ask God to expand your circle of influence. Each of us has a circle of influence. People in our lives who care about what we think, who want to feel that we love and care for them. Often they are family members and friends. They could even be coworkers or employees if you're a, a manager. Ask God to show you how to love them in a way that they really know you love them. And I think what you will find is that doing good for them is a big part of that. We often demonstrate our love for others by doing good for them. So look for opportunities to do good for those in your life, to bless them. And when you see an opportunity, take it. Try to act on it as quickly as you can. Don't wait, just do it. I think you will be pleased with the results. 
This isn't in the specific text that we've been looking at today, although I think the author does get there in chapter 13 of Hebrews, and we find it throughout the New Testament, uh, this call to love others, to love our neighbors. So let's love those within our circle of influence and ask God to expand our circle of influence so that we can love and do good for even more people. Now, I can imagine someone asking me, so do you think we should just go along with something we believe is opposed to God's will for people? Do you think we should just go along with something that we think is opposed to God's will for others? No, I don't. I think we could share what we think with others, but not in an imposing way, not in an overbearing way, not in an argumentative way. And I think we should accept that we now live in a post-Christian nation. The world as we know it has changed. And our approach to societal issues needs to change accordingly. The church's witness, I think, is at stake here in the United States. And for me, that's what's most important. What's most important to me is the church's witness. I care more about that than anything else. And by witness, I mean experiencing Jesus as the greatest, most beautiful, all-consuming person in the universe so that others will come to see him as the, view, the universe's greatest, most beautiful, all-consuming person. If the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is Lord, which is something I, I tried to suggest weeks ago, if that is the gospel, it's the announcement that Jesus is, is Lord, then the proclamation of that announcement, the proclamation of the gospel, both in the, what we say and the way we live our lives, should first and foremost lead people to worship him. And the way we proclaim him matters. We have to clarify the goal, or at least our highest priority when it comes to engaging others. Is the goal to make the United States a Christian nation? 35 or 40 years of culture wars have not accomplished that. You could argue that they have accomplished almost the exact opposite. Or is our goal to so reflect Jesus that others come to love and worship him? 35 to 40 years of culture wars have certainly not accomplished that. But loving people doing good for them, looking for opportunities to bless them. Those actions reflect Jesus to others. They help them see him as the greatest, most beautiful, all-consuming, and I'll add, most awe-inspiring person in the universe. And when they see him as all those things, they are drawn to him, and he brings change. Let's pray. Lord, I know that this subject is a hot-button subject right now. And you know that my tendency is to try to avoid those normally. And I also know that I'm, you know, that, that we are a church that really does want to love and meet people where they are and reveal your love for them. So, Lord, I ask you to empower us to do that. Where there is a kind of culture war in our hearts, Lord, I ask you to take it away. Where we have turned away from you, I ask that you'll turn us back to you. That you'll once again reveal yourself to us as, as being the great and awesome and beautiful one that you are. So that we can show others just how great and awesome and beautiful you are. I pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.